Well, welcome to Life Church this weekend. I'm Aaron Cole, the senior pastor. It's great to see you. Hope you had a good time with your family and that you got full. And if you didn't, you can join me at China Buffet uh, after the service, right, for a good fun time. Are you guys awake? Everybody awake? I was like, okay, Ooh, all right, yeah. It's good to see you here this weekend. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 10. And uh, we're going to talk about compassion this weekend. Uh, and we've been talking about this the last several weekends that uh, we're going to be giving you an opportunity at the end to take up an offering for Convoy of Hope, which is uh, one day to feed the world, to take one day's wage and give it to the poor of the world. And for every dollar that you give, what happens, Convoy is able to take that dollar and turn it into basically $7. So uh, as far as food and, and uh, relief and uh, so it's an incredible deal, and we've been talking about it. I don't want to spend a lot of time on that as much as just uh, that's kind of the whole uh, precept of, of today's weekend's message. And in preparing for this, uh, I've been reading a book. It has nothing to do with this, but I came across this book as I was uh, working on this message. Uh, and I'm reading this book about Steve Jobs, his autobiography that's out. And uh, two interesting, interesting uh, things. One is that his adoptive father, Paul Jobs, I was born and raised on a dairy farm in Germantown, Wisconsin. Didn't know that. And the second thing is, is that Steve Jobs tells this story about how he, because of his parents' upper Midwestern raising, wanted him to, to at least have his childhood in church and were taking him to a local church there in, in California. And Steve had seen these pictures in Life magazine of hurting children, of hungry children, of starving children uh, in a developing third world nation. And he brings them to church. And after the service, he asks the pastor for a few minutes of time. And he pulls out this magazine and these pictures. And he asks the pastor this question. Why would a loving heavenly father allow this to happen on this planet? Turns the page. Why doesn't God do something about this? Turns the page. What's God's answer for the hungry and for the hurting and for the downtrodden? And Steve Jobs says in his own words, in essence, the pastor couldn't give me an answer. It was more of a now, now there, Steve. Uh, this is complicated. You're probably not going to understand this. And he in his own mind said, yeah, I understand this. You have no answer for why God does this. You have no reply for why this is happening in the world. Why in the world would I want to give my life to a man named Jesus who doesn't care about this stuff? Why do I want to give my heart and my life to the church, to someone who doesn't care about the hurting. If God really is up there, why doesn't he do something about this? And if you can't answer my question, I don't want anything to do with Christianity, with God, with church, period. And Steve Jobs says at that age, he left the church and he never returned. I think we should have an answer for that. I think the world that we live in asks that question all the time. Maybe they ask it of you at your office. Maybe they ask it at you, you know, at school. Maybe they ask you that question, what about this? Why, why, is, why is bad things happening in this part of the world? What is God? Why would he allow this to happen? Well, that's what we're talking about today is compassion. Mother Teresa said this, the poor don't need our compassion or our pity. They need our help. And what they give to us is more than what we give to them. Let me give you a definition for compassion this weekend. Compassion is the action to alleviate suffering. Compassion is the action to alleviate suffering. Compassion is the action to alleviate suffering. Jesus addresses this issue of compassion by defining in Luke's gospel who our neighbor is. We know this as the parable or the story of the Good Samaritan. Um, but uh, as you'll find, as we read along today in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, 
and, and following, as you'll see, there's, there's a whole lot more to this and just kind of what meets the eye. He says it this way in verse 25. Just then, a religion scholar stood uh, with a question to, to test Jesus. Teacher, what do I need to do to get eternal life? Jesus answers in verse 26, what's written in God's law? How do you interpret it? Now, again, in Western uh, debate or in Western culture, if somebody asks you a question, the polite thing is to answer their question. And actually, if you really want to show them how much you know, you just give them all the facts. You just, you just, whoever has the most information wins. But in Eastern culture, it was able to reply to a question with a question. And if you could have a greater question, that showed much more wisdom. So Jesus comes back and he asks this, what's written in the law? How do you interpret it? Verse 27, the religious leader says that you love the Lord your God with all of your passion and your prayer and your muscle and your intelligence. He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. And that you love your neighbor as well as you do yourself. He's quoting Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Jesus replies in verse 28, good answer. Do it and you will live. And this is a great answer because this is the exact same answer that Jesus gives to the same group of religious leaders found in Matthew chapter 22. When they ask him this question, he gives them that answer. They're just quoting the Old Testament law. And what's interesting is Jesus doesn't quibble over the whole how do you get eternal life or how do you inherit. Uh, I think the NIV, the, the, new, the King James Version says, we all know that you don't inherit it. You don't, you don't just get it. It's not willed to you. Jesus doesn't even go there. He just lets it continue to go on because he knows there's a bigger fish to fry. And he looks at verse 29, he says this, looking for a loophole, the, the religious leader asked, then how would you define neighbor? How do you define neighbor? Now, neighbor was a hot topic in this day and time uh, among the Jewish re- religious leaders because this uh, concept of neighbor is established all the way back in Leviticus in the Old Testament and Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. But the, but the religious leaders of the day had defined that their neighbor was going to be a synonym or synonymous with brother or people group. So in essence, if you were a Jew, then you were considered my neighbor. If you were not a Jew, which is everybody else, the Gentile, uh, then you were not my neighbor. And so I'm to take care of my Jewish brother or sister. But if you're a Gentile, I have nothing to do with you. So they would interpret the Ten Commandments with thou shalt not kill your Jewish brothers and sisters. If you're a Gentile, you're fair game, right? This is how they did it. it you, thou shalt not bear false witness against your Jewish brother or sister. But if, if you are, if you're a Gentile, sorry, I'll, I'll lie all the, all the way, all, all day long. I mean, it was this, this ideology. And they had gone and developed this so far in the first century that they had reinterpreted Sabbath law. You know, the, the Sabbath is holy, keep the Sabbath holy. So just like God built and created the heavens and the earth and on the, la- on, on the seventh day he rested. Um, they established that as, as uh, things like this. If, if there was an earthquake and a building crumbled or a wall fell on, on someone and uh, it was on the Sabbath that uh, because of the Sabbath law, they weren't able to do any work or activity. But what they would do is they would allow themselves to clear the debris and the, and the rubble away from the person who the wall had fallen on enough to see if they were a Jew or a Gentile. If they were a Jew, then they would rescue them. If they were a Gentile, they would leave them to the next day because they wanted to honor God with the Sabbath. I mean, this is how like extremely legalistic these religious leaders were that, that were asking Jesus these questions. And so Jesus says, hey, I'm going to tell you a story. Now, this is a funny thing I think about Jesus and about the whole thing, because I hear this all the time. You know, that church doesn't really preach. They just tell stories. Well, that's what Jesus did. And if it helps you, that better it's a parable. If that sounds more spiritual, we're going to have a parable today. Great. It's a story with a meaning. That's what it is. So Jesus tells this parable, this story, 
And he begins it, and, and he says that there was a certain man who was, taking, who was going down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, that was about a 17-mile stretch from Jerusalem to Jericho. It had a lot of hairpin turns. It was kind of a desolate place. Uh, it, it was, uh, you were going hundreds of feet in uh, and, and, and sea level down. It was a descension. And it was a great place for, for robbers to hide, hide out, especially for people that were traveling at night or traveling by themselves, and to be able to basically just mug people, rob and, and steal and leave them for dead and go do what they want to do. It was, it was called the, the way of the blood. And, uh, and so, because so much of this was happening. And Jesus is speaking to the, to the people at this point, this audience, they would have known all this. It's kind of like if I were to say, hey, you know, Good Hope Road between 45 and, and, and you know, and, and such and such road or, or the stretch of, you know, the, the zoo interchange or the Marquette interchange, you would know exactly what I'm talking about, you know, because you live here, you get it, you know it, you understand it. And so when Jesus is speaking, all of these people are hearing this. They're all understanding what he's saying. And what's happened now, it's not just religious leaders of the day that are asking him these questions. All around them have all these people come to hear Jesus. These laity or laymen, these non-religious leaders are coming to hear this story. And the crowd begins to thicken and things begin to happen. So Jesus sets this up that this man's taking this trek of road from Jerusalem to, to Jericho. He is, he's basically beaten and left for dead. And there are three people that come by. The first person is a priest. And the priest is coming by. And, and we know he's leaving Jerusalem, going to Jericho, because it says he's coming, going down, which would have been the dissension from Jerusalem to Jericho. And basically Jericho in this, this first century was a city where uh, most of the priests lived. Uh, a lot of the religious leaders lived. And because they would have to um, preach in multiple or, or minister in multiple areas, it was, a, it was a typical commute, if you would, for them to go from their home in Jericho to Jerusalem to be able to administer the, the sacrifices of the altar. Of the, you know. And then when they were done with their priestly duties, they would go back home. They would take their 17-mile commute, if you would. They would go from downtown out to the suburbs, whatever, and they would go to their house. And so this priest is doing his... His commute. He's been he's been ministering in the in the tabernacle. He's been doing these godly things, and he's on his way down. And he sees this body. He doesn't know if he's dead or alive, but what he knows because of the Levitical law, the Old Testament says, if he comes in contact with a dead body, he's got to turn around, go back to Jerusalem, go through the ceremonial cleansing, which is going to cost him time and money and energy and effort that he doesn't have, and. And, or, but if he leaves it alone, he can just pass by and continue to go. So he passes by. Now, the next person you know, that comes by is, is the, the Levite. And again, he's a religious leader, but he's not quite as high-ranking as, as the priest. And so he would serve in the outer courts. He would more interact with the people and, and would more take their offerings and then pass it to the priest and, and do of this. And, and so he, he, again, was probably in, in, in his commute from Jerusalem to Jericho. And in doing so, he doesn't stop and he doesn't help. He does basically the same thing that the priest does. And probably for the exact same reason, because he was under the exact same law. Now, before, but, but, but neither one of these men showed compassion at all. And before you get too upset, before we beat up on the priest and the Levite, before we beat up on the pastor too much, right? This is where I live. Before you do that, understand these probably weren't bad men. They were just busy men. They probably weren't bad. They were just busy. And, and, and they were too busy working for God to care like God cares. 
They were just too busy working for God to care like God cares. I mean, I get this. I mean, they're, they're, they're in the city. They're in Jerusalem. They're doing all the priestly stuff. They've preached four weekend services. They've met with people. They've touched with people. They've taught with people. They've prayed with people. They're tired. They're emotionally drained. They're mentally drained. They're physically drained. They're walking this trek. They can typically walk this trek because, you know, they're men of the cloth, so the robbers would leave them alone because they didn't want to evoke the anger and the rage and the wrath of God. And so these guys would do this as a regular community. And they see someone that's in need on the side of the road. Instead of talking and taking time out and the energy and the effort, they just keep going. See, sometimes compassion doesn't happen, not because we don't see it, just because we're too busy. Because we can hide behind spiritual laws and, 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 and steeples and stained glass and all of our religious, well, I can't do this because and I can't do that because. It's the same thing as you're going home from your job and you're, you're on your 17-mile commute and you're going home and you see someone stranded on the side of the road and you think somebody else will go help them. I don't have time. It's really cold and wet outside. I don't have time. You just don't know who people are these days. You know, they could mug you and leave you for dead. I don't have, you see a need, you just kind of go, you know, I'll deal with it later. I'll do something later. Maybe next week. It's, I'm really, in a, I'm, I'm running late as it is, whatever it is. Problems, interruptions, nuisances, intrude on the privacy. And so Jesus has set this whole story up. And at this point, everybody in the crowd is like, come just like it's gotten quiet. This is like a Steven Spielberg moment. I can tell by looking at some of you, you, you read the Bible way too sanely. It's, 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 it's way more active than what you give it credit for because it begins, this hush comes through the crowd. And all of the laity, all the non-religious people around the, around, on the outer side are watching this and they're thinking this, here he comes. The good, powerful religious leader is going to fall. And that we like that, right? Come on, let's be honest. I mean, it's when someone who is powerful and has the ability to do something great and they just don't do it because here I am to save the day, right? Mighty mouse to the restaurant, right? All of a sudden they think, hey, some common Joe, some average Joe, some, some guy that just loves God and just serving God, he's gonna be the one that's gonna come to the rescue. Yeah, those powerful religious leaders, they're done. And, and those, all their big flowing robes and all their big talk and all that, they're over with. I mean, he has just demolished them. And the crowd is getting ready on the edge of their seat. Like Jesus is just about to go downtown, Judy Brown, power driver, take them to the mat moment. And all of a sudden, Jesus says there was a Samaritan. When he says the word Samaritan, it was like he hit a raw nerve. The whole crowd goes, no. I know it's not in there, but it's in the nearly inspired version. No. There's no way. Say it's not so, so, so. Right? Because a Samaritan was a social outcast, a social misfit. I mean, a Samaritan basically uh, was, was, had Jewish blood in them and then Gentile blood. And so they weren't, they weren't accepted by the Gentiles because of the Jewish blood. They weren't accepted by the, the, the Jews because of the Gentile blood. They were a social outcast, a social mit, misfit. They weren't accepted. And there was no such thing as a phrase good and Samaritan for those two words to be put together. See, in our language, in, in our day and time, we have not-for-profits and NGOs that are called Good Samaritans. We teach our kids, be a Good Samaritan. I mean, it's something that's just talked about. But in this day and time, those two words were mutually exclusive. They did not connect whatsoever. Even the religious leader at the end of the story, at the end of the parable that refers to the Good Samaritan, refers to him, and I quote, the one who showed mercy, end quote, couldn't even say the word Samaritan because it was just too low for him to say. And basically, Jesus puts together these two contradictory words in the first century, 
Samaritan and neighbor. And he brings the whole subject matter, boom, right to the juggler like he typically does. And he says that there is this good Samaritan. There is this Samaritan. And I want you to catch this. Uh, the, the reality is that the Samaritan didn't see anything that the Levite and the priest didn't see. But he felt and he acted on something that they didn't. And the story, it's not the Samaritan's nationality that he's known for or that sets him apart, but it's his compassion. And again, I remind you, compassion is an action to alleviate suffering. That's what compassion is. Compassion is an action to alleviate suffering. And this Samaritan, the Bible says in verse 33, that he sees this, 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 this one. He, he sees this man's condition and his heart goes out to him. First thing I want to tell you is, is that compassion is personal. At the end of the day, compassion is personal. Compassion is personal. And you're going to see a clip here. And this is just in Kenya last, last February where, where a couple of guys from the church went with me. And we're out in the bush at this point outside of Nairobi. And we are in a feeding program with Mission of Mercy. And you can see we're scooping up rice. And then Mark right there, he's putting a little bit of broth and some chicken. And you see the kids are getting their plate. And, and, and they're going for the day because this is one day's nutrients. This is what, this is what they need to, uh, to sustain them for a day. And they're lined up. If the camera could show you all... Japan, that you would be able to see the kid just lying all the way up on the, on the hillside. Why? Because compassion is personal. Compassion is personal. When you see someone that's hurting, when you see someone that's in need, you don't just sit there. It's what drove these, these six guys to go with me to Kenya and spend a week of our life and got on a plane and, and went. And I, I was like, guys, I'm telling you, it's nothing like sitting there, do, taking, scooping out the rice and putting in the broth and passing it out. There's nothing like that to be able to see that. In the eyes of these children, to see all of a sudden they're so happy. They're so excited because when you see someone that's in need, <laughs> like these children, you, you, there's something that you want, you want to do something. You don't just, it's not just feeling, pity doesn't help anybody. Pity doesn't help anybody. You feel sorry for somebody that does nothing for them. Pity doesn't help anybody. It doesn't give a lending hand, doesn't do anything. Pity brings no dignity to people that are hurting. They don't, listen, poor people don't need your pity. They need your compassion. They need you to take what, what influence and what resources that you have to leverage that, to help them. That's all they need because without you, they don't have the ability to. The man that's laying on the side of the road, we don't know what his nationality is. Jesus said a man. That's all we know. He doesn't care who helps him. He doesn't care if he's a religious leader. He doesn't care if he's a Jew, if he's a Gentile, if he's a Samaritan. All he needs is someone to hear his cry, to hear his hurt, and personally not have pity on him, but personally go to him and minister to him. Because compassion is personal. We see it all the time. Some of you, you watched the clip at the very beginning to set up the message, and you see this. You go, I've seen this before, seen this before, never been there, seen it before. I encourage you, either go on a trip where you can smell it, where you can hear it, where you can feel it, where you can touch it. 
And if you go, man, I don't have time, I don't have the money, then I tell you what, contact, contact Ke- Kevin Miller, our missions pastor, who was just, who was just here, and, and con- contact our, 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 just contact the church and ask to speak with Kevin, and Kevin will get you connected with Stephen Priscilla with Adullam, and we'll put you in a van, and we'll drive you just a few miles away from here, and you can smell it for yourself, and you can see it for yourself, because poor is poor anywhere in the world, and hungry is hungry anywhere in the world, and hurting is hurting anywhere in the world, because here's at the end of the day, it is Compassion is personal. It's not just seeing it. It's doing something about it. It's alleviating the suffering. And my prayer for you this weekend is that in the next seven days, God will bring across your path someone who is hurting, whom you have the opportunity to alleviate their suffering, not to feel sorry for them, not to have pity upon them, but to love them with compassion that only God can give. And you'll see that person. I'm telling you, because you remember this, 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 this moment in the message, you'll see them and it will hit and the Holy Spirit will boom, will hearken it to your heart. And all of a sudden you'll have a moment. Are you going to have pity on them? Are you going to be like a religious leader who just walked by them? Or are you going to alleviate whatever the suffering is? Maybe it's a child in your neighborhood who you go, man, you know that the parents are never home, the kid's a latchkey kid, and you invite them into their house. Maybe it's a neighbor that you have that you realize, man, they've been out of work for a long, long time, and you just see things that are in disrepair, and you go over and lend a helping hand. Maybe it's a situation that you know about of someone in your office or someone that's in your kid's school, and you minister to that need anonymously. Maybe it's, maybe it's you're on your commute home, you're going to see someone who's in need of help, and you're going to help them. I don't know what it is, but I'm telling you, compassion. Passion is always personal. Jesus goes on with this, this story. And he says, he says that the man sees him in verse 34 and that he takes out his first aid and he applies immediate care and then takes that person, puts them on his own, his own animal, his own beast, and takes him to basically to the end, to the hospital so that he's able to recover. Because why? Because compassion is practical. At the end of the day, compassion is practical. May not be always the greatest spiritual thing, but compassion is practical. You're going to see it on this clip here. In Laos, we just had some guys uh, in, the, in the last 10 days. It just went to Laos. And, uh, and they're, they're there. And the kids are lining up because they're, they're backpacking in these villages. And some of them have never heard of Jesus. And they pull out a soccer ball. And the kids start coming out because all of a sudden they realize, okay, we don't know who these men are. We don't speak the same language, but we all understand soccer. And so they come out. You can see the kids. And they're all high. And then the parents begin to come out. And it's just practical. It's just we're just going to spend some time just helping. This works Central America, Southeast Asia. It doesn't matter. This, where you're seeing that right there, that is closed communist country. The gospel can't be preached openly at all, but you pull out a soccer ball, the kids come out, everybody comes out, and then you're able to be able to communicate and be able to do something. Why? Why would people, why would grown men take their own money, take their own energy, take their own effort, spend, take time away from their family, Get on a plane, take vacation time and do that. Because compassion is practical. At the end of the day, we can say all day long, we care about people, we love people, we, we, we have a heart for lost people. But until we open the doors of our heart, until we open the doors of the church, until we open the doors of our car, woo, don't shut me down when I'm preaching good, and invite them. Come, ride, see, be a part, let me help you, whatever, to be able to do that. Because it's practical. And here's what I want you to notice. The Samaritan doesn't say, man, I need to go back to Jerusalem and get some first aid. Man, if I just had this, if I just had that, because I can see that with sometimes. I can see it even today, people going, well, if I had this, I wouldn't. If I had that much money, I wouldn't. You know, if I had a bigger house, I wouldn't. If I had, 
We hear that all the time, small groups. Well, if I had a bigger house, I'd have people over in small groups. Really? I mean, all you need is like 10 by 10 space, 10 by 12 space, 12 by 12 space. You don't have that. If I had, yeah, you do. The reality is, is that somewhere along the line, we, we quit thinking about it's what's in your hand. It's practical. It's not about one day when I get a million dollars or one day when I get a big house or one day when I have. It's just simply ministering to people right where they are. And it may not even be involved money. It may just involve your time. Some of you, you're, you're, I mean, most of you in this room are educated. Have you ever thought about just volunteering an after-school program in an inner-city school in Milwaukee? Practical. How about involving yourself, you know, in a boys or a girls club and, and, just, and just sharing the love of Jesus Christ just by living near your example and being a coach and coaching some. I'm not talking about a suburban little league where everybody gets a ribbon. I'm talking about going to where there, where there aren't any coaches and where there aren't anybody out there. Have uh, you thought about it? Just, it's practical. I see a need and I'm going to meet it. I see a need and I'm just, I'm going to invest in it. I'm going to try to do what I can do because compassion is practical. Because at the end of the day, if it's just some big message, if it's just some big sermon, if it's just some big idea, if it's just some big offering, that can't always happen. But man, when I just see somebody that's in need, and I just meet that need, that's compassion. It's to alleviate suffering. And Jesus goes on and he finishes this story. And he says that the man takes him in verse 35. He takes this wounded individual. He brings him to the inn and he tells the innkeeper, here's what I think is going to cover it. But if there's anything less, anything else, I travel this road all the time. I'll be back. I'll pay for it. Make sure he's taken care of. Why? Because compassion is costly. Compassion is costly. Compassion isn't cheap. Compassion will cost you something. Check out this clip. This is from the ladies that just went to India, just went to Calcutta. This is inside of a brothel where they're having a worship service. In the brothel, an active brothel, and they're having a worship service. And, and, and God is beginning to move. And the women, the ladies that are there, these Indian ladies that are in this room, if it got out what they're doing, they could actually lose their lives. Why would people do that? Why do you go to that? <laughs> Why would... For the most part, suburban housewives here be, get board a plane, go halfway around the world in order to minister to these ladies in a brothel. Go to the brothel. Be there. Minister to them. I'll tell you why. Because compassion is costly. Compassion costs you something. It personally connects. It's practical. But it's costly. It, 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 you, you have to do something. And that's why we're doing what we're doing today. Just one day to feed the world. That's the reason why I've asked you for the last three weekends, prepare yourself, prepare yourself, prepare yourself to take one day's wage and just give it to the poor and the hurting. Give it to the poor. We're gonna, we're, and none of it stays here. None of it goes here. We don't keep any of it here. Matter of fact, truth be told, it's already gone and spent. And, and the reality is it's because we're going to give it to Convoy of Hope because they're going to minister to hurting, hungry, impoverished people of the world. I've been there, I've seen it, I know the organization, the integrity in which they operate with. And, and you may say, well, man, is, is my offering really going to solve poverty or hunger in the world? No. But we're not responsible to solve the world's hunger or poverty. We're just responsible to do what we have the ability to do. I'm not responsible to take care of everything in the world. I'm just simply responsible to take care of, of, of what I have the ability to take care of. But I have a responsibility. Why? Because I'm blessed to be a blessing. Because when I see something, I'm responsible. 
Because I don't want to be like the religious leader. I want to be like the Samaritan. And it's, it's personally going to involve me. It's personally going to take my time, my talent, my treasure. It's going to cost me something. And it's practical. It's not something I don't have. God never asked me to do what I don't have the ability to do. Because it goes back to the Steve Jobs story at the very beginning. What should his pastor have said? How do you respond to why would a loving Heavenly Father do this to people? I'll tell you what his pastor should have said. His pastor should have looked at Steve Jobs, who probably is one of the most brilliant minds we've had in the last 100 years since Einstein. He's affected more markets and more things and shaped more things in our world than any other person that's lived in the, la- in the last 100 years. He should have looked at Steve and said, Steve, you're the answer. You're the answer. Because God so loved you that he gave his only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for your sins. And because, Steve, you've accepted him into your heart and your life, it's now your responsibility to be the hope of the world. That's why Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. And if you lose your saltiness, what value are you? You're the city that's set on a hill. If you lose your light, what value are you? Steve, you are God's answer to this problem. You may say, well, I don't know if I agree with that theology. We're the hope of the world, folks. God put us here. God put you here. He put me here to hear the cries of the lost. We're not here to build steeples and stained glass. Listen, I'm just going to tell you something. I think way too long, the church pulpits in America, we've talked about padded pews and candy stick Christianity and a God that will love you and take care of you and never ask anything from you. The Lord and Savior Jesus Christ said, if you're not willing to denounce houses and homes and families and mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and to leave it all for my sake. You're not worthy to be called a disciple of me. The God that we serve ask us that we give everything to him. I'm not asking you what your favorite TV preacher says. I'm not asking you what your favorite church says. I'm not asking you what you think about the worship, the lights, the video, the audio, or me. I'm telling you the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't ask it. It demands of you and I to give it all for the sake of the gospel. And anything short of that, it's not our best. Wow. He must have had a lot of turkey and dressing. I did. Thank you very much. See, that's the problem. We don't know how to answer people. We don't know what to say. God's already answered it. We, church, will never be responsible for what the government regulates or what they say is okay or not okay. I've said this before. We won't be responsible for the abortions that take place in, this, in the United States of America or in the world, but we will be responsible for the children that are orphaned in this world. Because the book of James says that pure and undefiled religion before God is to take care of the widows and the orphans. Now, you can shirk that responsibility. You can brush it off like you do snowflakes on your, on your lapel. But I'm telling you, we'll stand before a God, and we, as Christ followers, will give an give a account for what God has blessed us with and what we've done with that. Because compassion, compassion demands it of us. I love what Mother Teresa says. If the poor die of hunger, it's not because God doesn't care for them. It's because neither you and I were generous enough to take, it, take care of it. God's provided. And I'm not talking about capitalism or socialism or distribution of wealth or Marxism or any other kind of ism. I'm just talking about people that are hurting and that are hungry, that are impoverished, that have no ability to do for themselves. We, the church of Jesus Christ, if we're known for anything, we should be known for just loving people 
helping people, serving people. That's what this is all about. So today, I want you to take the orange envelope. Even on the West Campus, I want you to take that orange envelope. Online, there's a button that's on your screen that you can go to and that you can click to be able to give. And I'm going to ask you, I've been asking you this the past several weeks, to prepare yourself and to be able to give uh, in this offering, to be able to do, to be a part of this. I'd encourage everybody, even if you go, man, I don't know anything about this and I'm a guest. I thought he said I don't have to give anything. Forget what Kevin said. Just do something. I don't care if it's a dollar. If you don't have a dollar, steal it from your neighbor. God will bless you. He'll take care of it. But whatever you need to do, even on the West Campus, because what we're going to do is we're going to take those orange envelopes. We're going to take these envelopes right here and we're going to put these in the offering here in just a minute. I'm going to pray over the offering and then we're going to take them up right here. And I'm going to ask God's blessing over this. And I know, I know, I, even on my way to, to preach today, I was just thinking, man, this is crazy. I mean, we, we, we asked people to bring the tithe, and now we're trying to prime 29, and we're paying off. We're on the last little over $100,000 left on the shopping center and to try to pay all this off. And we are crazy to do this. And I'm reminded what I preached last week, that God will get, a, get it to us if he can just simply get it through us. Michael Brinkman just said yes to the Lord, and God took care of his need. It's a young man in our church. You don't know the story. I'd go online and it's, it's there from last week's message. God will answer. God will take care of it. God doesn't need it. We need to be people of compassion. So this is what the opportunity is. We're going to give you an opportunity to be able to give towards this. I'm going to pray over this. And, um, and then we're going to, uh, to be able to, uh, uh, Kevin will come back out and give us a, a, a dismissal. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you today. I just thank you, Lord, for, um, for your blessings. God, we are a blessed people. And I know there are people in this room that, that, that get that, and there are people in this room that are struggling because there's things that are going on in their world. But Lord, your word says that when we give to the poor, to those that don't have the ability to reciprocate it back towards us, that we lend to you. And we can't outgive you. So God, I just pray that you bless this offering today. That's exactly what it is. It's not our tithe, that's yours. It's just an offering. Bless our compassion, our action today to alleviate suffering. And I pray one more thing, God, in the next seven days, for every person in this room, every person watching online, Germantown campus, West campus, I pray that you, Lord, would bring someone across our path who is in need, that we will have the opportunity not just to see it, not just to feel it, but to do something tangible to help, to act with compassion, to alleviate the suffering or the need that we see. Let us be people God, that don't just serve you with our lips. God, but that we serve you with our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you as you give.